Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Later this hour, we'll talk with an author who hiked and trespassed his way along the route of the Keystone XL pipeline. But first, 2006 was a big year in Connecticut politics. Two big city mayors battled for the Democratic nomination for governor. New Haven's John DeStefano beat Stanford's Dan Malloy. DeStefano went on to lose to the very popular incumbent Republican Governor Jody Rell that year, and Malloy set the stage to run again in 2010 and win the general election. Former Democratic vice presidential candidate Joe Lieberman was also running for a fourth term of the U.S. Senate, but his road to re-election hit a stumbling block in the Democratic primary. That stumbling block was named Ned Lamont. Today, in my final week as host of Where We Live after 10 years, we're going to look back at the high-profile political race that was happening just as our program got started with a man at the center of it all. Ned Lamont, welcome back to Where We Live. John, it's always good to be back, and I really want to just congratulate you for what you're doing. I mean, Where We Live is so important. This is during these times of fiscal crisis here in Connecticut. I mean, you are reminded how important state government and good decisions are. And where we live really cast a spotlight on what we're trying to do for many years. So I'm glad you got that going, and I'm really pleased what you're going to be doing on a regional basis now. Thank you, Ned. I, I appreciate it very much. And you know, one of the reasons I want to have you back on is as, as we look back of the 10 years of the program, because it is celebrating 10 years, and, and the, the time that I've been hosting it, you've probably been on the program just about as much as anyone, because you've had a, a real big impact on Connecticut politics. And I want to, I want to start... By by taking us back to that year that where we live started and the year that you were running against uh, Joe Lieberman, I guess the first thing I'll I'll ask you, and we've talked about this in the past, but now with ten years of hindsight, maybe you'll have a little different perspective. Take me through your thought process as you were thinking about staging a run against a very popular incumbent, uh, essentially from the left within the Democratic Party. What, what were you thinking about at that time when you when you made that decision? Well, many years ago, John, I had done some work in the Middle East. I had helped design cable television systems. I uh, knew something about that part of the world. And uh, I really thought that we are rushing into a terrible decision that we're going to have bad long-term consequences for our country in the Middle East, that being the hasty invasion of Iraq. And um, I am – sort of bemused 10 years later where it looks like everybody and their brother was against the war at the very beginning. But when I threw my hat into the ring, um, there was only one Connecticut elected uh, person uh, there in the room. That was uh, Ed Gomes from Bridgeport. Really, everybody else um, uh, was not on board. Certainly not Donald Trump, who sits around saying how opposed he was to the war at that time. I don't remember him speaking out. Um, but I was a private citizen, and uh, I really believe strongly that we were uh, making the wrong decision. I went to a number of the elected folks, and I tried to get um, you know somebody to stand up and at least amount a challenge to Senator Lieberman. And somewhere along the way, people said, if you feel so strongly about it, you did it. And that's what I did. Throughout the course of this last year, as we've seen the movements of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, and, and before that, 
uh, what happened with the enormous tide for Barack Obama back in 2008, Howard Dean in, in the intervening years. We, look, we've seen a lot of candidates who seemingly have changed the rules of the game slightly. Did you think at the time that you were changing anything about the way people might mount a challenge based on really one very important issue at that time, the war in Iraq. But do you think that you were changing anything about the American political system or the way people viewed candidacies like yours? Well, I was certainly happy to challenge as an outsider. And uh, Barack Obama ran as an outsider. Bernie Sanders ran as an outsider. Uh, Folks, um, um, everybody's pretending to be an outsider in this particular campaign. Uh, But I was I really believe that uh, you did not have to have a long political pedigree to stand up and challenge, um, you know, our political system. And uh, for a race for U.S. Senate, um, I really thought that our Senate was making a lot of bad decisions, not challenging, um, you know, the president where they should and take on their constitutional responsibilities. So I did sort of appreciate or realize that coming in as an outsider, you have a special responsibility. I really thought I had to bone up on the issues and show that you were um, involved and um, knowledgeable because as an outsider, sometimes you can do it as a fling. And I was not going to let that be the case. So as you've looked at these uh, other outsider candidacies, what what are some things that that maybe you can you can say about them? I mean, for instance, Bernie Sanders, very much like you, Bernie Sanders has been running a campaign largely on one really important issue. It's economic inequality. Essentially, you were running about a war that you didn't think should be happening. And, you know, Bernie Sanders is in another way running about a a war that he thinks should be happening, a war against inequality in America. What can you say about the Bernie Sanders campaign? What what maybe you, with your hindsight, might be able to to impart upon uh, him or his supporters? I I love his campaign. I mean, he's a man of principle who, as you say, brought a big issue, shined a light on it, and now has um, Hillary Clinton and um, a lot of the Republicans talking about how we have an economy that works for everybody. And uh, I think he um, put that forward in a uh, you know thoughtful way. He was a little polemical, I would say, but that's sometimes the nature of an uh, outsider uh, candidate. And I think it's important over the years that um, if there are big issues that come forward, you um, you take them and, and raise the flag. It's worth remembering that before everybody panics that um, outsiders 99 percent of the time lose and uh, the incumbents uh, almost always get reelected. So it's not like you're upsetting the apple cart and having a revolution every uh, eight years. Uh, a la Thomas Jefferson's comment, but it is good to inject some energy and thought. And I think that both the Republican and Democratic parties, you know, wandered away from their uh, basic middle class uh, roots. And uh, I think you've got candidates on both sides who are trying to uh, wake them up. Talk about that that, uh, idea of moving people's minds, even if you're not necessarily going to win an election. I think that's something we've heard a lot from Bernie Sanders supporters who who say, despite the odds, you know, he he still has a chance to capture the nomination. Uh, many people who who look at what he's done say, well, it's not really important whether or not he wins. What's important is that now more and more people on both sides of the aisle are talking about it, M- much like when you ran against the Iraq war. There were an awful lot of people still supporting that war. And now, as you say, it's very hard to find anyone who will who will admit to having supported the Iraq war. Do you think sometimes it's OK, Ned, to change people's minds and know, yeah, maybe I'm not going to get the office, but something's going to happen anyway? 
Well, first of all, I wanted to get the office. Uh, I was not just uh, Don Quixote there. But um, it, when I stood up, uh, I talked to some of the pros and they said you can't challenge a war when you have troops in the field fighting. It's uh, unpatriotic. It's un-American. We'll revisit this at another time. And um, you know, my major theme as I um, campaigned was bring our troops home to the hero's welcome that they deserve. And it is not unpatriotic. It is your patriotic duty to stand up and challenge when you think things are wrong and don't feel like you have to defer to the foreign policy elites. Often there's a lot of good common sense wisdom right on uh, Main Street in Hartford. And uh, so that was uh, the message I tried to bring. You know, while we didn't win, I will say that um, uh, a couple of years later, a guy named Barack Obama uh, was elected uh, president of the United States. And he ran in part for having stood up as a candidate for state senate on the war uh, in Iraq. And I think here we are now 10 years later. It's worth um, noting that we are having a broader discussion about what America's place is in the world. And even a guy like Donald Trump, who I disagree with vigorously, you know, does say there's a balance between how much money you spend over there and our investments here and our own people. When you think about all the foregone investments in a state like Connecticut, what we could have done with some of that money. Yeah, and in a bit, I want to talk to you, Ned, about what you see happening at the state level and with the state budget. But uh, I, I want to keep the focus a little bit right now on on the Middle East and what you what you think has happened over the course of these intervening 10 years. You mentioned Barack Obama, of course, winning the presidency in part on his opposition to the Iraq war. How would you grade the Obama administration after almost eight years on how it has handled that war and the other long war in Afghanistan? I give him pretty strong grades. I really do. I I don't subscribe to those that say um, after 10 years, we left Iraq too hastily or the surge in Afghanistan didn't last long enough that we could have fundamentally changed the dynamics of what is an enormous Sunni-Shia civil war. I uh, salute the man for saying we don't need another war uh, with Iran and we've got to do everything we can to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. And he came forward with a diplomatic solution that so far is holding. So far, they got rid of all the heavy water. They got they took down the um, nuclear reactor. They've made a uh, they've honored their side of that deal. So I um, I'm, I'm sympathetic to a president that um, inherited an impossible situation. I know there are those that say if we'd gotten involved in Syria early and we had um, armed the moderates, whoever they were, we would have made a um, potentially forestalled what has been um, genocide. But um, I think there's nothing to indicate that we could have fundamentally changed the dynamic over there. I mean, America is going to have a significant presence in the Middle East uh, for the rest of our lives. And we have to. It's too important part of the world. You can't allow that place to disintegrate. You can't allow the warring factions who, you know, now have the ability to launch attacks in Paris and Brussels. Uh, but whether an, um, an armed American response is the best way to deal with that, I'm doubtful, and so is the president. Well, what should that presence look like? I mean, you're over there with NGOs. There is awful an awful lot of NGO activity in that area. There's still some, obviously— uh, American diplomatic and military uh, work done, being done over there. What do you think the American presence should look like in that part of the world? I think that we should um, do everything we can to um, stop ISIS. 
And uh, I think you, that includes working with all the regional powers that do want to stop ISIS. Ironically, that includes um, folks like Russia that are over there and, uh, and the Assad government. Get your priorities in terms of who your enemy is. We don't have to be in the front lines. We don't have to take um, a military lead there, but we've got to work with all the respective parties and set a priority. Secondly, Iraq is just an absolute political disaster, and a lot of that is the results of uh, you know our having um, upset the apple cart there. And Iran's presence has never been stronger. And you saw that uh, some of the Shia militias took over the green zone, which was the last haven of uh, you know um, international and domestic government there. I think uh, we should take a strong diplomatic push to make sure that the Iraqi government is inclusive and includes both sides of the Shia equation and most importantly incorporates the Sunnis back into the government and gives them an honest, honest place in the military as well. If, they, if we don't play that diplomatic card in a serious way, Iraq is going to be a disaster and ISIS is going to proliferate for a long time. When it comes to fighting ISIS, though, do, do you support the notion that, that we need to funnel some sort of, of arms to those in the region who will oppose ISIS, given the fact that we don't want to put troops on the ground ourselves? Yes, I do. I mean, uh, ISIS is too dangerous internationally, not just to mention within the region. And uh, we have to do everything we can to help you know, our friends, the Kurds and uh, the Iraqi Sunnis, even some of the Shias. Uh, you know, sadly, maybe it, we're going to have some effort with, you know, Russia coming from one direction and Iran in the other to do everything you can to uh, stop ISIS. I think President Obama has had a pretty reasonable balance there. The footprint of ISIS is shrinking every day. We've won that war. We will win that battle militarily. But that doesn't mean there won't be cells all over the uh, region that are danger to our homeland as well as Europe. Uh, Ned Lamont is a businessman who was founded Lamont Digital Systems. He's also former Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate back in 2006 and also governor in 2010. He's been a colleague of mine at Central Connecticut State University, and we're talking to him as we celebrate 10 years of where we live and also 10 years since his insurgency, uh, since his run against Joe Lieberman back in 2006. And this is where we live. Uh, I want to turn to the the U.S. economy before we we turn to Connecticut. Uh, One of the things that has, has really dogged the Obama administration over the course of these last eight years or so is is just this slow economic recovery. As you look at the state of the U.S. economy, I guess I'm wondering, Ned Lamont, how much of it do you think has to do with um, bad luck? How much of it has to do with bad decisions made on Wall Street? How much of it has to do with our focus on fighting these two very expensive wars overseas? I mean, what, what has led us to the point where we seem to have this nagging problem with adding jobs, at least the, the type of growth that we I think would like to see in America? You know, we had virtually free money, very low interest rate money. That was the time to do a uh, multi-trillion dollar 10-year infrastructure project, paying people $15, 20 $25 an hour, a real living wage, get people back to work with um, work with integrity that builds the long-term um, future of our state and our country. And it was a terrible miss that we did not do that. We relied too much on the Federal Reserve and free money, and that jacked up asset prices, and that made Donald Trump even richer, and it exacerbated a great sense of unfairness in this country. How do we combat that, Ned? I mean, the the fact is, is it's not just a feeling amongst Americans that most middle-class people feel left behind 
and more and more wealth is being concentrated at the top. It's an actual real truth. I mean, we just see that uh, every single day in which more power and more money is concentrated in, I suppose we'll call them the 1% or the 0.01%. How do we actually fi- fix that systemic thing? I mean, does it come from Washington or, or a Hartford legislature, or does it have to come from somewhere else? Well, you've got to understand folks and the sense of anxiety they feel, and they're one sickness away from a bankruptcy. That's as true today as it was in uh, 2008. I think um, it's unconscionable from my point of view that somebody can work a 40-hour week and still not have enough um, income to support a family. I'm very supportive of, uh, you know, increasing that minimum wage. I think that Bernie Sanders did us a real service by putting $15 as a target and a uh, uh, for us to focus on so that work pays. What is more conservative in America than the idea that work pays? This $15 is a target. This is something that a lot of people in the business community, and you've been a businessman for a long time, they say, my goodness, that's going to force us to to shed jobs. We won't be able to afford to pay people that. Don't tell us how much we have to pay as a minimum wage, but you, you think it's a good idea and you think it'll work economically. I think it's a good idea. I think it'll work economically, pay people enough. They have some spending money, help build up the middle class, which has been decimated um, you know, in uh, parts of our state and certainly around the country. These are not jobs that we're going to lose to uh, China because these tend to be service jobs that people uh, serving you meals or taking care of your parent and nursing, whatever it might be. And these are jobs that ought to pay a decent wage. We're talking today to Ned Lamont, businessman and former Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate in 2006 and candidate for governor in 2010. When we come back from our break, we're going to turn our attention to state affairs and the economic problems of Connecticut. Later this hour, we'll hear from a man who walked the path of the Keystone XL pipeline and wrote about property rights in America. Join our conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today, we're looking back at the 10-year anniversary of our program, which is also the 10-year anniversary of Ned Lamont's entrance into the national political scene when he defeated Senator Joe Lieberman in the Democratic primary. Now, Lamont lost to Lieberman in the general election after the incumbent staged a third-party run. And just four years later, Lamont ran for governor, eventually losing to current Governor Dan Malloy in the primary. Um, As you look at what's happening in Connecticut right now, I guess I'm wondering if you can uh, think through how we might solve this big budget crisis. Because, look, I'm 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 trying to get advice from anybody I can. When I talk to people up at the state capitol, um, people seem pretty bereft of ideas. We have uh, Democrats at the state legislature coming up with another package of one time fixes and kicking the can a little bit further down the road. Governor Malloy, I've sat and talked with him a number of times. He thinks that there's a lot of cuts that need to be make, made to state government. But he doesn't believe that we should put any sort of tax increases on the table, even though if you look at the numbers, it seems fairly clear that we will probably have to have some tax increases. As you look at the big picture, Ned, what do you see in the state budget? How do we start to fix it? Well, I tried uh, six years ago. Believe me, I tried to um, (laughs) step forward there. And um, uh, as an aside, I can tell you, John, that um, the voters of Connecticut, they're willing to take a flyer on an outsider for Senate. But for governor, you want somebody who's an insider who they really know because you are controlling their pensions and their health care and that bridge. Um, And uh, so it's tougher as an outsider to come in. And I do think sometimes the state of Connecticut really use a breath of fresh air as an outsider coming in to challenge how we're doing business here. 
six years ago when I saw the $3.5 billion yawning deficit, you know, I really thought this was a unique time, unique, you know, maybe since Lowell Weicker uh, inherited a crisis uh, 15 years earlier, you know, to have a grand bargain. And um, it was going to include um, state employees and pensions, and it was going to include the taxpayer. Uh, but what we were going to do was we were going to solve it. We were going to solve it in a serious way, the same way Lowell did that back in the early 90s, so that we could take that risk and uncertainty off the table. I mean, um, the one thing worse than tax increases is the uncertainty that there may be another tax increase in two years and another uh, cut in my pension in two years. It's that uncertainty that so saps and demoralizes you know, both our empl- state employees as well as our taxpayers. And in the case of state payer, uh, employees, they're both. It, so our, the great disappointment is we have not solved this issue um, really since Lowell put us on a, a pretty good course back in the uh, early mid-90s. Of course, getting on that course, though, people will say that that course that included income taxes meant that we had now a pathway to raising more revenue for the state and that the state government has grown somewhat uncontrollably over that time. I mean, before we talk about some of the specifics about what Governor Malloy maybe can and can't do right now, you know, just talk about that size of state government. Some people, you know, will say that it's grown far out of proportion to what it provides to the people of Connecticut. Hey, look, I don't think we're spending too much money on mental health. I don't think we're spending too much money on uh, educating our kids in the inner city. Um, I, I, I don't support that. Look, Dan Malloy inherited tens of thousands of state retirees, teachers and state employees, and we didn't set aside any money for them. We didn't set aside money in the 80s, and we started to do it in the 90s, and all of a sudden that bill is coming due. So when you say um, we're you know spending too much money, the problem is we're not investing in the future of the state. We're not doing an infrastructure. We're not doing it for our kids. Uh, we're not taking care of those with the basic needs. Most of that money is going to pay for prior obligations. And um, so I'll give a little you know, defense there that this is a mess that Dan did not um, create. It's a mess that he inherited. But uh, the time to really do it is the beginning of your administration and try and get a really balanced um, result. And we didn't do that. And this drip, drip, drip every two years is just killing the uh, morale of the state. Well, yeah, you, you were running for that job in 2010, the, the, the job that he got. You were both looking at the same deficit. He did go to state workers and he did go to taxpayers. So we, we got a little bit back from the state workers. We certainly raised taxes a little bit, but it didn't cover it. I mean, wh- what could we have done differently at that time at the beginning? Is it just you know more from state workers and a little bit more from taxpayers or what should we have done? I think yes and yes. And, um, you know, I used to be chairman of the Investment Advisory Council helping the work on the state pension funds and um, a little better return, it, um, just a little better return. If uh, we could get uh, one or two percent better and do that over 10, 20 years, you start solving a lot of those long-term entitlement issues. Uh, look at the returns that the Yale Endowment gets or, you know, some other big funds compared to what the public pension funds get. We've done okay in the state. We've done about average, but uh, that's not good enough. Are you mounting a run for treasurer 
Ned Lamar. <laughs> I'm just uh, taking a look at ways that you can solve this issue. <laughs> well, look, here's something we've been talking about a lot, and we'll be talking about uh, a, a lot on the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, of course. A lot uh, written in just the last couple of days about people leaving the state of Connecticut, high wealth individuals, a big story in the New York Times talking about how New Jersey's budget is teetering on the brink because maybe one big hedge fund manager might leave and go to Florida, and oops, there goes hundreds of millions of dollars in tax money. What do you see, especially sitting in Fairfield County, as the reality of that, that the state tax structure is going to force people like you, who got a little bit of money, to just leave, go someplace like Florida where the taxes aren't so bad? Well, as the um, token Democrat, Dana Greenwich, believe me, (laughs) I hear that wherever I go. And I do point out that you're in your 60s now, and you probably were thinking about Florida anyway, so it's great to blame it on Dan Malloy and the taxes, but there are a lot of reasons why people have been going to Florida for a long time. But it is something we've got to focus on as a state. Unfortunately, uh, some of the guys you may not like the most, you know, hedge funds and the investment companies and uh, the rich guys are very mobile. And when um, a Thomas Petterfee leaves the state and goes to Florida, he takes with him probably $50 million a year in Connecticut state income tax revenue. And um, that that is a, a factor. But to me, more important than the individual tax rate for um, some of these folks is just saying we've got at least a budget that's more or less in balance. Jeffrey Immel, you know, GE, it wasn't necessarily that there was a threat that there was going to be another, uh, you know, percentage point put upon um, his tax. He didn't pay much Connecticut tax anyway as a, as a corporate entity. But it was the fact that this is unsolved for decades now and that every two years you're going to be coming back to GE. Yeah. And so one question then is, Ned, before I let you go, how can corporate citizens help solve the problem as opposed to saying, you know, the government's got to solve it? I mean, is there something is there something that the GEs of the world, given the fact that they've been able to recruit people for years to this very nice, fertile environment where the kids can go to good schools and they've got beaches and parks and they're on a train ride in New York City? And is there anything that the corporate uh, world of Connecticut should be saying other than, well, the state's got to do more for me. What can they do to help us right the ship? Because it seems as though something must happen soon or else we will continue to bleed money here at the state. Get in the boat and start rowing and stop bitching. I really think uh, the business community in this state has been a little bit um, you know, distant. I mean, Jeffrey Immelt says, uh, you know, I never heard anything from the state and, uh, you know, they're a detriment. Well, get to the table and start working it. We've got CBIA and Fairfield County Business Council, and I've helped put together a group of uh, business folks involved in education. But compared to a lot of other states, our business community is not as involved as they should be. And I don't mean just in terms of not-for-profit work. I mean, most of the time when I hear from these guys, they say, if this doesn't change, I'm out of here. And I think we need them at the table with us every day. The next governor of this state should really make sure that the business folks feel a sense of citizenship as members of the Connecticut community. And uh, working together, we can do so much better. Last thing for you, Ned. Now now that it's been 10 years since you staged the first high-profile run for Senate and you got involved in electoral politics – 
is politics the way to solve some of this stuff? Or is there something else that we're not looking at? Because we talk so much about a presidential race. We talk so much about a hotly contested Senate race or who's going to be the next governor. But at the end of the day, I mean, you just said it. Stop bitching. Let's row together in, in the boat here. And that feels like it's, it's all of us coming together. It's not one person running for one job. Do you still think that electoral politics is the way to solve a lot of these issues we're talking about? I think it's a big piece of the equation. Uh, Look, I didn't win, so I've been very involved in the not-for-profit sector, and I appreciate the good efforts those folks do internationally as well as here in our state, but really strong leadership. I mean, look at what uh, Mitch Daniels did in um, Indiana, or look what, um, you know, the governors over a long period of time in Massachusetts. Good leadership makes a a significant difference for a state. And, uh, and and Lowell Weicker early on. I mean, I think being a, having the courage of your convictions, that leadership, those are the guys that bring um, the business community together, bring the state employees, treat them with respect, have them at the table. You know, it's something this state has missed for many, many years, and we've paid a price for it. Ned Lamont, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us here on Where We Live. Good luck in your new endeavors, John. Coming up, we'll speak with author Ken Ogunis. His new book is Trespassing Across America. One man's epic, never done before, and sort of illegal, hike across the heartland. You can join the conversation on our website. It's wnpr.org slash where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, the state legislature heads into overtime and the state political parties make their endorsements for this fall's congressional elections. Meanwhile, a dispute between the state GOP and a top political reporter has us wondering about the press in the 2016 election. Hope you can join us for our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse. Now, one of the recurring themes of where we live over the years has been that of who owns what, whether it's our strict home rule concept of government that parcels out decision making on a town by town basis, or whether it's property rights as highlighted by the Kelo case in New London, We see Connecticut as a kind of laboratory for asking questions about what's mine, what's yours, and where's the line between us? Ken Ogunis has been thinking a lot about these issues, but not in the context of tiny Connecticut. Now, he walked the length of the Keystone XL oil pipeline plan, which connected Alberta to Texas. Big places with lots of what seems like a lot of open space. But what he found is that even in the middle of nowhere in America, it is likely you're trespassing. Ogunis is a self-proclaimed environmentalist and Keystone opponent who wrote a book about the pipeline and property rights in the U.S. It's called Trespassing Across America, One Man's Epic, Never Done Before, and Sort of Illegal, Hike Across the Heartland. Ken Ogunis, welcome to Where We Live. It's great to be on. First of all, tell me about the reason you're so fascinated by this idea of walking open space, of walking places where most Americans don't think to walk. Yeah, that was kind of secondary to my um, expedition to walk the length of the proposed route of the Keystone XL pipeline, which would be about a a 1,700-mile walk from Alberta, Canada, down to the Gulf Coast of Texas. And to follow this pipeline, well, pipelines don't like roads. Pipelines like to cross country to get to their market or to their refinery in as few miles as possible. So like they like to cross cropland and grassland and private property. So that meant if I wanted to walk the Keystone XL pipeline, I'd have to do the same. I'd essentially have to trespass across America. 
And your reason for wanting to walk the length of this pipeline was to to tell the story of this very controversial pipeline, one that was cutting through so many people's farmlands and it obviously caused so much controversy along the way. The Keystone XL, it was in the news all the time back in 2011, and I was just really intrigued with it, um, partly because this was the first time that a good chunk of the country was opposing a pipeline or any public works project on the grounds of man-made climate change. And I was just really interested with that. I identified that as a as a historic and significant moment. And I guess I just wanted to go out there and experience this pipeline and learn as much as I could about it. And as you as you made this exploration, you were learning an awful lot about the places that it went through. To tell us a bit, give us some highlights for for you of this of this travel that went from from Alberta far up north all the way down to to the Gulf Coast. I mean, what did you see that that maybe surprised you along the way? I, well, I would say that I was surprised just with the magnificence and beauty of the Great Plains. You know, when we think of the Great Plains, we think of that one drive we took to Denver across the I-70 in Kansas, you know, windy, flat, boring. That's the impression you take away from the Great Plains. But when you walk across it, when you walk 1,700 miles across it, you begin to appreciate just how how magnificent this simple, beautiful, underappreciated landscape um, it is. You know, I'd watch 50 deer or 50 pronghorn just storm across the prairie, elegantly leaping over these barbed wire fences. I'd watch about 5,000 ducks ascend from a hayfield and swirl in the sky like a tornado about to touch down. Um, and just and just these just, just um, really impressive and magnificent things. And how is it different than walking roads? Because so many of us do have that experience of driving across country and seeing the magnificent sights from the car and maybe getting out and walking a quarter mile off the road to take a, a snapshot of something along the side. But it, it must be different walking through open fields and not really seeing roads that much. That's right. Yeah. America America wasn't really built for walking. America was built for driving. Um, and, I, and I think that's partly why we don't see the same walking culture that um, folks in the, the United Kingdom, say, in other countries of Europe get to enjoy. So to go on a walk across America or to go on a walk anywhere, you usually have to drive a good distance just to get to a state park or a state recreation area or one of those big mega trails we have, like the Appalachian Trail or Pacific Crest Trail. Um, so that's c- partly why I was so intrigued by this journey. I was going to take a route that no one had ever done before on this sort of illegal hike across the Great Plains. And I kind of wanted to see um, America from a different angle that no one had ever really seen before. And and this brought me you know, up close and personal with a lot of landowners, a lot of folks who would be affected by the Keystone XL pipeline. And I got to have their, I got to get their viewpoints on things, which I would not have been able to get if I was just sitting in front of my computer screen. Were you often uh, confronted with people who were uneasy or unhappy about the fact that you were trespassing on their land or that you were taking this particular trip? Uh, not really. I mean, we we have to kind of 
imagine ourselves on the Great Plains, especially up in these provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan and these northern states of Montana and South Dakota. Sometimes uh, ranchers up there own as many as 60,000 acres. I mean, that's like the size of Seattle. So when I'm walking across these places, it's not like I'm walking through backyards. It's not like I'm walking through, you know, grandma's flower beds or anything like that. You know, I'm walking in this vast rolling grasslands, which appears to me just to be like a, an undesignated national park. So my encounters with landowners and, you know, prickly people, they were actually quite few. Um, I, I, you know, I would have to find ways to get water. I would get water from cow ponds and lakes and stuff like that and windmill springs. I didn't even know what those windmill springs were even were. I just thought they were like decoration out for the Great Plains. <laughs> um, but yeah, when I didn't have any other access to water, I'd go knocking on doors and talking with ranchers and farmers. And this was my opportunity to talk with folks um, about things like uh, the Keystone XL and pipelines and climate change. Did did any of those conversations change your mind about this project, or did it inform you in a way that, that surprised you along the way? Uh, I'd never been on the Great Plains. I don't know much about pipeline country. I don't know what the sort of thing these landowners are dealing with. So in some instances, yes, like my opinion became a little bit more nuanced, like folks who are oftentimes struggling, they're, you know, having trouble paying the bills. When a pipeline company comes in and is offering $10,000, $20,000, they're going to bring, you know, um, a, a meaningful but short boost to the local economy. They're not really going to be worried about things like climate change or even the environmental risks because they do have a sense of mortality. They're, they have a sense of their town's mortality. Because on the Great Plains, when you're walking through there, you see so many boom towns that had turned ghost towns. However, by the end, the pipeline, um, you know, I was, I was even more against this pipeline. There's just so, so many things that didn't make any sense to me. For instance, I walked several hundred miles of um, pipelines that were um, that would parallel the Keystone XL. Guess how many workers I saw out there on those pipelines? I saw zero. Because uh, once these pipelines are in the ground, there's no more jobs. And a pipeline company like TransCanada at one point was projecting there'd be 20,000 jobs and it would really lift up the economy. And that's just not the case at all. Um, and a lot of these states that had pipelines um, going through their states, they weren't even profiting all that much. For instance, Kansas gave um, pipeline companies a 10-year tax exemption. So Kansas isn't making any money off of the original Keystone 1 pipeline that goes through the land. In Nebraska, the um, pipe is considered a um, piece of equipment that depreciates over time. So after 15 years of the pipe's lifetime, um, it, it loses all of its taxable value. So I saw a lot of folks in a lot of states who aren't really benefiting all that much from pipelines in their states. We're talking with Ken Ilgunas, whose book is Trespassing Across America. He's also written a piece for The New York Times about uh, this issue of walkable lands across America. As he took his trip down the XL pipeline, he was also thinking about how we have maybe different ways of uh, expressing ourselves walking around than the European countries do. And that's what I want to turn and talk to you about a little bit. Uh, 
How much did this experience teach you about private land and trespassing laws here in the U.S.? And how much did you know about those laws before you started the walk? Uh, I didn't know anything about these laws. You know, I know you're not supposed to go on ground that has a, a no trespassing sign, but it's no fun going through life without breaking a few rules. So I just kind of turned the other way or just, you know, passed them when I saw a no, no trespassing sign or a barbed wire fence. But yeah, this trip made me think about property um, in ways that were unexpected. When you're constantly worried about getting shot for walking over private property, you just begin to think about, you know, your your country's conception of property. And it wasn't really until um, after I finished my walk and started um, researching for my book, Trespassing Across America, that I began to learn that other countries have a very different approach to um, how they conceive of property. For instance, up in Scotland or some of the Nordic countries, Sweden, Norway, Finland, they have something called the right to roam. And that's that grants citizens access not just to public land, but to private land. So a citizen can essentially go wherever he or she wants within certain um, limitations. Like you can't walk into someone's home. You can't even walk anywhere near someone's home. You can't damage property. But you can go and you can camp and you can pick berries and you can swim wherever you want. This is a sense of liberty that America doesn't have and hasn't had for a very long time. And how did it get to be that way? Is it just the the basic nature of American property rights, or is there something that is very ensconced in, say, the culture of Scotland or the Nordic countries that allows them to be so free and easy with uh, their walking rights? It's it's a little bit of both. We had the right to roam up until about the Civil War, and then just a number of things happened. In the South, a number of trespassing and hunting laws were passed to prohibit African Americans from hunting and f- fishing, and this was supposed to kind of starve them into submission. Up North, a lot of laws were passed to, to limit immigrants from hunting. Gilded era wealth favored the interests of property owners, and a lot of folks were legitimately worried about um, game populations. So just by you know one state statute and one court ruling at a time, America got closed down, and we lost the right to roam, which we very much had. So is there a, a burgeoning right to roam movement here in the U.S.? It seems like that cuts against many of our longstanding beliefs that, you know, what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, and we, we, we shouldn't cross each other's paths. I, I assume, though, there's a lot of people who want to change that. Uh, surprisingly not. I mean, there's like there's this um, the Surf Rider Foundation and they're trying to open up um, coasts to public access. And I think what they're doing is great. But there is no right to roam movement in the U.S. that wants to open up land. There's probably a lot. There's probably folks here and there, you know, working on their access rights to their local community um, private grounds and, and things like that. But we don't have what the U.K. has in their Ramblers group. That's a very powerful walking rights advocacy group who fights to open up private land. Um, So in the year 2000, they passed the Countryside and Rights of Way Act, which opened up 
uh, private mountains and private heath and private down. And in 2009, they opened up um, private coasts as well. So now all these citizens can enjoy it. Um, and they were, you know, dipping back into their, they're tapping into their, their history of being able to walk wherever they want, which is something that we ought to do because, again, we had the right to roam and lost it, and we need to remember that. And it's interesting, too, in just the last couple of years, all of these movements with whether it's the Bundys or the standoff in, in Oregon, you see more and more Western ranchers west of the Great Plains where you where you walked that are up against the Bureau of Land Management. And being from the East Coast, I've always been amazed at, at how much area the BLM owns and how much is essentially able to be roamed by American citizens. Um, I, I assume that there's an awful lot of people out West who'd like to change that because they'd like to be able to uh, to claim more more land on their own. But you're right, Can I almost feel like the, the movement in America is going in exactly the opposite direction from what you're talking about. Yeah, the, the Bundys. The Bundys upset me. Um, so, yeah, so we have a ton of uh, public land out west, Bureau of Land Management land, forest land, National Park Service land. But that's essentially out of reach for a lot of Americans who are, you know, based on um, the west coast and the east coast. On the east coast, we don't have that many public lands to go to. To go on a walk, you have to walk down a noisy unscenic, and oftentimes dangerous road. In the past 10 years, over 600,000 Americans have been hurt in um, car-related incidents. We just have nowhere to go. We're funneled into these dangerous places when I think we should be having a conversation that the Europeans have been having for several decades, and that's opening up private land for public access. And right now, that is a very controversial thing to say, especially when radical ranchers and the Bundys out west are making the exact opposite argument to privatize some of our few public lands, which I think really ought to remain public because there really is nowhere in America to roam. You know, I'm also a um, park ranger, I work up in Alaska during the summers for um, the National Park Service. And I know across America, you can't even roam our national parks. Oftentimes, you're um, funneled onto a trail. You have to camp at designated campsites. And those rules are there for very good reasons. But we're forced to think about land in these very limited ways because there's so few places we can go to have these recreational opportunities. Well, and I I was thinking about that because uh, on your New York Times story, there were some comments, and one of them I, I read, and I thought about it for a little bit, and I think that the commenter might have, have a point here. It's that in the European tradition, you see European tourists or you see European roamers on the land, and you don't necessarily see, see the same number of, of bags and bottles and trash and other crap left behind. And I, I don't know, Americans can sometimes do get that... that um, ugly American uh, idea attached to them, in part because they, you know, they trash the place. I mean, maybe there's a good reason why Yosemite doesn't want people going off the path because they're just going to ruin it. Do you think Americans rightly get a bad rap, or do you think that maybe we're, we can't be trusted with some of the, the nice places that we have? Uh, I, I, uh, I think you have a point there, and I think the folks who make that argument have a decent point. Like, we do not have 
the same degree of leave no trace and environmental ethics that other countries have. But that doesn't mean we should just shut down the conversation because of that. That doesn't mean that we can't improve. Either in the 1950s or 1960s, there was a big movement to limit litter, and that worked. Um, that worked. So I think if there is some sort of movement to enhance our leave-no-trace ethics and make us better stewards of our natural environments, it's certainly possible that a right to roam could thrive here. And you mentioned it briefly, but I'll just ask you quickly about, about beach access. For for us here in, in the Northeast, you know, there's so much beautiful beach land and so much of it is privately controlled. And and here it has another layer, too. It's not just about private ownership versus public use. It's also about race and class. I mean, who gets to go on the beach really has a lot to do with who you are and where you're from. I guess I'm wondering if the beaches are a place that we might start to make some of these changes. I think the beaches are a great place to make some of these changes because other states have done a marvelous job opening up their beaches, and we can learn from them. For instance, Hawaii and Oregon have passed very generous laws that have opened up beach access to all of their citizens you know, a, a private owner cannot close off his portion of the beach. And I think this this whole issue speaks to something larger that's happening in our country, where class and political divisions are maybe starker than ever. You know, when I'm walking across um, rural North Carolina, where I used to live, or rural Oklahoma, where I walked across on my Keystone XL exped- expedition, I'm seeing a lot of homes that are just enclosed. There, there's, there's, there's cage fences and no trespassing signs and private property signs and a big, loud, angry dog there. And just folks aren't interacting. Folks in America, they, we just don't trust one another. We don't trust each other as a country. And I guess I think of this right to roam as just one small way to get us a little bit closer I think a different way of thinking about property will make us think about just the neighborhood of America a little bit better. Ken Ogunis is a journalist and an author. His book is called Trespassing Across America, One Man's Epic, Never Done Before, and Sort of Illegal Hike Across the Heartland. He joined us today from the studios of KUHF in Houston, Texas. Ken, thanks so much for joining us on Where We Live. It's been my pleasure. Where We Live is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. The technical producer is Kion Wolf. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. I'm John Dankosky. Hope you can join us for the wheelhouse tomorrow. This is Where We Live. <laughs>